0: Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts for part two of the Rod Farrell Vampire Cult Story. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew, and if you missed part one, this is not going to make a lot of sense. So go on back, give that a listen, and then come back for part two. I'm going to pick up today where we left off, which is Rod Farrell and Scott Anderson are walking into the unlocked garage of their friend Heather's house, the home of Ruth and Rick Wendorf. While in the garage, Rod grabbed a crowbar, then they went inside. Rick was asleep on the couch. They snuck through the house quietly and cut the phone lines. As they walked past Rick Wendorf to get to the back bedrooms, he woke up, and immediately Rod beat him with the crowbar they'd picked up in the garage. He was worried that even after beating him savagely, he might wake back up, so he proceeded to stab Rick through the chest with it. He then combed through Rick Wendorf's wallet and searched his pockets for the keys to the family's Ford Explorer. Once he was finished with Rick, he found Ruth in the kitchen, fresh out of the shower, wrapped in her bathrobe, and holding a cup of hot coffee. When Ruth realized what was going on, she threw her coffee in Rod's face, which infuriated him. He lunged at her, and she scratched his face with her nails. After that, though, he quickly took control of the situation and beat her to death. Then they rummaged through the house to look for money or other useful items. Rod went back out to where Rick's body was and decided to burn a V into the man's chest with a cigarette. His vampire name was Visago. That's why the V. I won't read you the details, but all the autopsy findings are listed in The Embrace by Aphrodite Jones. If you want to really know the extent of it, I do recommend the book, Uh, but just believe me, it was very brutal. When Rod was finished, he rinsed off the crowbar, grabbed a big garbage bag, hopped in the Wendorf's Explorer and took off with Scott in tow. They pulled over to burn their shirts in the woods Then they stopped at a gas station, shirtless, to clean up. Over an hour after the murders, Heather's sister Jennifer arrived home and noticed the explorer was gone. She was out past curfew again, so she was trying to sneak into the house without anyone noticing. She got all the way back to her bedroom and tried to call her boyfriend, but found the line was cut. She figured it was just Heather acting up, so she then headed for the kitchen. She found her mother's body in the kitchen, and then her father in the next room. She called her boyfriend in a panic from her cell phone, then hung up and frantically dialed 911. She then ran into her sister's room to wait for first responders. It had occurred to Jennifer that the killer could still be in the home, so terrified she stayed on the phone with the dispatcher until the paramedics arrived. And at this moment, she had no idea where her sister Heather was. When Heather saw the Explorer pulling up to the Buick that she, Charity, and Dana were in, she was confused. She thought it was her parents at first, then realized it was the boys in the front seat, shirtless. The Explorer took off, driving quickly, and so the girls followed. Heather wanted Charity to get Rod's attention so he'd pull over and they could ask what had happened and why Janine wasn't with them but they couldn't get them to stop. Until they were far away from Eustace. Then they both pulled over and Charity went to speak with Rod. She came back a few minutes later and explained to Heather that Rod had done something she couldn't explain and that Heather needed to stop asking questions. While they were talking, Scott and Rod had switched the plate on the Explorer from a Florida plate to a Kentucky plate. Heather was concerned at this point and she really didn't want to leave without Janine. Heather's what, 16 years old? She's in a car with two girls she's never met before today, following two teenage boys in her parents' stolen car without the friend they said they'd pick up, and no one will tell her anything. Oh, and they all think they're vampires. Meanwhile, Janine LeClaire's mother, Suzanne, found Janine standing outside in the middle of the night, confused, waiting for her friend Heather to show up with friends and whisk her away. Once Janine told her mother the whole plan, or at least the watered-down version, Suzanne tried desperately to get the Wendorfs on the phone, but obviously with no luck. The lines were down. Janine's mother drove out to the Wendorf house and when she got there and told a detective what her daughter knew, the investigators asked to speak with Janine as soon as possible. So she collected Janine and went back over to the crime scene where they learned about the double murder and that Heather was missing. And at first, Janine was too stunned to even talk. One newspaper falsely reported that Janine tested positive for gunshot residue which made things really awful for her, and for her family. When word got out that this group all thought they were vampires, you can imagine how the news outlets swarmed. The Leclerc's were inundated. Janine even ended up in a mental hospital for a week while they got things straightened out so that she would not be pestered. Meanwhile, the investigators collected over 100 latent fingerprints, many of which would later prove to be a match to Rod. There were also boot prints all over the place. They touched everything. However, they couldn't find that murder weapon. But pieces started really fitting together when investigators knocked on Jeremy's door in the middle of the night, and he told them that she'd run off with her friend, Rod. At some point, the teenage vampire clan decided to ditch the Buick and all pile into the Explorer. Heather protested. She was afraid that her parents would be furious if they all got caught in their family explorer. This is when Charity told her point blank that her parents were dead. But Heather didn't believe her. She thought Rod was all talk. He'd never actually do something like that. But not seeing she had a choice, she joined the rest of them in the explorer and they kept going. Anytime they stopped for gas and supplies, Rod would quietly use Rick's debit card. Heather contemplated parting with the group during these stops, but decided to stay. On the way to New Orleans, the car ran out of gas, and Rod had to walk five miles to the nearest rest stop. He'd found Rick's cell phone in the car and used it to call his grandfather, Sandra's dad, who told him that the police were looking for him and that he needed to turn himself in. As he showed up back to the vehicle— A cop pulled up next to them, and while Rod filled the gas tank, he managed to talk himself out of any potential trouble, and the cop went on his way. When they were back on the road, Rod would try to get the morale back up by talking about all the excitement they had to look forward to in New Orleans. He would be introducing them to all sorts of vampires and witch doctors. Finally, when they got to the outskirts of New Orleans, Rod took Heather aside and explained to her that he really did kill her parents. She, he told her the details about each murder. She asked what he used, and he gestured to the crowbar that was still in the car. Interestingly, her next question was about what they were going to do to make money once they got to New Orleans. By the time they'd gotten to the outskirts of New Orleans, they'd already been on the run for a couple days. They were tired. They'd been camping. It was pretty cold at night. So far, the trip was not the glamorous, thrilling time they'd expected. Rod drove them down to the Mississippi River and made Heather throw out all the belongings she had packed. And while she did that, he tossed the crowbar in, too. The other girls were also asked to get rid of all their possessions. Then he took them to the St. Louis Cemetery to do some more blood bonding to get them back into the spirit. As they were roaming around the streets of New Orleans in the middle of the night, warrants were being signed for their arrest, even Heather's, and police were notified they might be in Baton Rouge and that the suspects were armed and dangerous. On November 28, 1996, Charity called her mom in South Dakota asking her to wire them some money. Her mom, Jody, actually worked for the local police department, and she alerted police as to where her kid was, and they set up a sting operation immediately. They were located not long after. Officer Ashton Thomas Dewey drove Rod Farrell to the police station in Baton Rouge, and while in the car, Rod told him that he was glad he'd gotten picked up. He was tired of being on the run. He said he'd tell them everything he knew, he just needed to see his pregnant girlfriend. Once they got him to the interview, he agreed to a full confession in exchange for a chance to see Charity. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and, 6-1 since that matters, and, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And he did give a full confession. He was smug, proud, arrogant. He waived his right to an attorney and to have his parents present. He told the police that none of the girls were present during the murders and that Scott was too scared to move, so he really didn't do anything but stand there while Rod did all the work. He told the police that at first they went to the wrong house. They saw some little kids in that house, and that alarmed him a bit because Rod had a rule about not murdering anyone under age 16. So Rod's role in the whole thing felt pretty straightforward at that point. What would be much more challenging was figuring out the extent of Heather's involvement. The press immediately painted her as a demon child. Classmates came forward saying they'd overheard her planning it. Her sister Jennifer also swore they'd had a conversation where Heather told her that if Jennifer ever wanted her parents killed, Rod Farrell would do it for them. According to Jones's book, The Embrace, the teenager's demeanor before their interviews was strange. They were seen as playful. They didn't really seem to care that they were sitting in jail. And Heather was still being friendly with Rod. All five of them waived their rights to attorneys and to have their parents present. It was like it was still just a game at this point. I don't think they understood the seriousness of the situation at all. It was during Charity's interview that the police told her that Rod, Heather, and Scott were being charged with first-degree murder, and Dana and Charity were being charged as accessories to murder. They told her they knew that Rod had been planning the murder for over a year, but Charity swore she knew nothing about it. At this point, the police still weren't even convinced that all five of them hadn't been present for the murders. Dana was the quiet one of the group, but she was also 19 years old. legal adult and so when it was time for her to talk she cooperated but she too assured police that she did not know that murder was part of the plan when she and Charity agreed to go on the trip to Florida. Now here's something worth noting. During his second interview with police, Rod was curious as to whether a 16 year old could receive the death penalty. I bring this up because it's an interesting question coming from someone who believed they're immortal. He also told them he felt like his childhood was taken from him at five years old. Again, we'll talk about this a little later in the episode. In the meantime, investigators searched Saunders' apartment in Murray and found that map of the Wendorf's house that Janine had sent him, smeared with blood. It had a list of places they wanted to go after and the phrase, leave before summer. When they talked to Scott, the investigators really tried hard to make him admit the murder was premeditated. But he wouldn't budge, because as far as he knew, it wasn't. They told him he was being charged with two counts of first-degree murder. And again, like the others, he told them they'd been planning a trip down to Florida for months, but he had no idea that theft or murder would be part of the plan. By the way, at the end of his interview, they asked Scott what the initials were that were carved into his arm. He told them that Heather had carved her boyfriend's initials into his arm. The kid was just a total doormat. Finally, they spoke with Heather. She was 15, polite, and shy during the interview, but they were totally disgusted by her. She told the police about crossing over, becoming a vampire, about the bloodletting, and other rituals. According to Aphrodite Jones in her book, a lot of what Heather said during this interview was, quote, twisted around and later used against her by Rod's defense team. They were also sure that Heather had been the one to send the sketch of her house to Rod, even though it was really Janine. When, at the end of this interview, they asked if she'd done all this again, would she have done anything differently, she did tell them that she wished she'd never met Rod. The group would be prosecuted in Florida by Special Prosecutor Brad King. Rod's defense team was led by public defender Candace Hawthorne. Their main focus would be to get Rod's confession tape thrown out, on the grounds that it was conducted without an attorney or parents present. Also, they knew how awful he came off in the confession, and it would definitely hurt their case if a jury saw it. Meanwhile, reporters were already swarming, and people were calling asking for the film rights. Right after he was indicted by a grand jury, Rod called the Oriole Sentinel thinking it would be a good idea to tell them it was Jaden and a rival vampire clan who committed the murders. He said he was framed. Once reporters learned about these apparent rivaling vampire clans, they went to Kentucky to get a closer look, some even climbing to the top of the land between the lakes to see the vampire hotel which was a hangout where supposedly all these clans used to hang out and perform rituals. It ended up being demolished because Murray was sick of being known as Vampire Central. From what I understand, though, there are still some remnants of it left over you can see today. Heather's case had piqued the interest of attorney James Hope in late December. He wanted Heather to offer her own testimony to the grand jury, which would leave her vulnerable to cross-exam, but he still thought it was the right way to proceed. The grand jury had made a decision about the four others already, but they couldn't decide what to do with Heather and had decided to reconvene in January. If she went to trial, she'd be going in front of Judge Jerry T. Lockett, known as one of Florida's toughest judges, and the jury would recommend a sentence, but Lockett would be the one to ultimately make the decision about their fates. Some of the people who testified against Heather turned out to be unreliable, and Hope knew that would help her case. They just needed to get her up there and tell the truth. By the time Hope met with Prosecutor King, one of the witnesses against her had already recanted her statement, and the statements from all the other kids corroborated Heather's version of events. Sandra was scheduled to take a polygraph because she was asserting that she'd overheard Heather asking Rod to kill her parents, obviously an attempt to move the blame away from her son, but she failed her polygraph. So Sandra changed her story after that. For the record, Sandra couldn't go and see Rod while he awaited his trial as much as she would have liked because remember she was still dealing with her own court case. You know, for soliciting sex from a 14-year-old. When she was able to talk to Rod, though, she assured him not to worry because, remember, he was immortal, and whatever happened, she would be eternally waiting for him. However, she did find the time to fly to New York to go on the Mari show. Now, the grand jury came up with a statement about Heather, and I'll read you part of it here. Quote, We have as much an obligation to protect the innocent as to pursue those who may have violated the law. In this regard, we must find that there is no longer probable cause to believe that Heather Wendorf was a knowing participant in the terrible acts that occurred in her home. Heather Wendorf, her sister, and the families of both Richard Wendorf and Naoma Ruth Queen will live the rest of their lives with the consequences of Heather's choices of associates and activities. Nothing that anyone can say or do will change the loss they've suffered. We wish them God's mercy and grace in the recovery that must follow. So Heather went free. And for a while, she went to stay with her maternal grandmother, Gertrude Adams, back near her hometown of Eustace. But according to Heather, her grandma tried to shoot her. So after that, she went... Catatonic for a while, she went to a psych ward, and then Heather was placed at the home of a wealthy attorney in Lake County where she lived a lavish life with her new family. But she wasn't exactly accepted back into the Lake County community with open arms. Everyone pretty much thought she should be in jail, not walking free, especially the Lake County police. Eventually, she dropped out of high school as the Lake County Sheriff worked to get her case in front of a second grand jury. This next part is interesting, and I always like to go into it a little bit. It's Rod's psych evaluation. His defense team figured an insanity plea would be their best bet, He was examined by three different psychiatrists and was diagnosed with a schizotypal personality disorder. He also exhibited antisocial behavior, plus attention and social problems, which would lead to him acting out violently or aggressively. They determined that some of his psychological stressors included frequent geographical moves, cult activity, alleged childhood abuse, impaired peer relations, and his chaotic family system. Factor in his frequent LSD and other drug use, and you're really creating the perfect storm. So now, I'll tell you about what Rod alleged happened to him when he was five or six years old. He said that his grandfather was a member of something called the Black Mass Cult, which was a satanic group. And he claimed that he was presented to this cult when he was five or six years old. And his grandfather Volunteered him to be sodomized by several adult males. Sandra's sister actually testified that it wouldn't surprise her if that was true, that her dad was inappropriate towards her as well, which led her to move out of the house when she was just 14 years old. They did a full profile on Sandra as well, and during the interviews, she confirmed his story. They also determined that Sandra was psychologically younger than Rod. Rod's psych reports were faxed to Prosecutor King just a few weeks before the trial was to start. These reports went over Rod being an unhappy kid who struggled to separate fantasy from reality. They talked about his multiple suicide attempts, although what do you make of that when you factor in the kid thought he was immortal and just hopping over to a different life? They also talked about him being emotionally deprived as a child, and about his lack of a father figure in his life, since he only saw his dad on very rare occasions. They had him take two tests, the Million and the DICA, which were both standardized psychological tests done on a computer. And he failed them both, but that didn't mean he didn't have any of the disorders. What they thought was that the computer failed to give him a profile because there were actually so many different psychological issues Basically, the computer just couldn't make sense of it. It couldn't fit him into just one psychological profile. Which, I mean, after following this story, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So this led to a lot of back and forth over whether or not he was able to understand what he was doing in the Wendorf's house was wrong. That's the argument they'd need to make in front of the jury, is that mentally he wasn't able to grasp that what he was doing was wrong. The main conclusion of the mental health experts finding was that Rod had this schizotypal personality, a learning disability, he abused drugs, and they also mentioned the infant encephalitis. So Heather was deposed for Rod's trial in October of 1997. In the year that had lapsed since the murders, she only visited her parents' graves once, and Rod's defense team tried to use that to their advantage. She also told the court that her plan with her parents' house was to fix it up and rent it out. Uh, She had also inherited, or was, was going to inherit, half a million dollars from their estate. They asked her about the bloodletting process, they asked her about vampires, and she said she did believe in them when she met Rod, but that she didn't anymore. In the meantime, Scott Anderson's attorneys, Mike Graves and Harry Hackney, were just really bummed about the case they had to take on. Scott told them he never really even believed that Rod was a real vampire. It was just fun. It made him feel important. He was trying to fit in. And he loved the game Vampire the Masquerade, and it was cool to him to get to go along with a real-life version of it, getting to hang out with someone like Rod. It sounds like Scott hadn't had a great childhood either, Uh, For a year, he'd been living with a foster mom who said he was a good kid, went to church, not at all violent, average grades. But Scott's dad was trying to win him over by buying him things, including the Buick they drove to Florida. And so the state of Kentucky decided he would go back to his real home with his dad, uh, who was apparently pretty violent, according to his foster mom. Now, Judge Lockett decided that they would all be tried separately, tried as adults, and that their confessions were admissible. Rod's trial started on February 5th, 1998. Everyone eagerly piled into the courtroom, and just as things were about to get rolling, the defense team approached the bench to tell the judge that Rod wanted to change his plea. Rod thought it would save him from the death penalty to plead guilty. He was waiving his right to a trial and was escorted right back out of the courtroom. On the way out of the room that day, Sandra told reporters, quote, "'We live forever.'" So after years of telling everyone that Rod was immortal, he was now desperately trying to avoid the death penalty. Now, the prosecutors still had to present all the evidence for a week so the jury could give the judge a sentencing recommendation. And the Rod on the confession tape was very different than the quiet Rod they'd seen momentarily in court. Remember, during the, the confession, Rod was smug, proud of himself, excited about his crime. When Rod's friend from Kentucky, Jaden, took the stand, he showed everyone a Valentine card with a love note inside from Sandra. Sandra believed that when Rod was found innocent, the three of them would live together and be a little vampire family. She'd even proposed to Jaden and promised to love him for eternity. When Sandra, who was going by star at the time, took the stand, she told them about this time when Rod was two, and they had to rush him to the hospital because he was having convulsions, but there was no record of this, from what I understand, and the, the attorney said, were you on any drugs at this time? To which Sandra responded, quote, well, I was addicted to phenobarbital, and I was drinking a lot. They also went into her time as a prostitute, and how she would often leave Rod alone, often, when he was not quite old enough to be left alone. They also called her out on the fact that she'd told people she was writing those letters to the 14-year-old friend of Rod's because she was trying to get into their cult. And she said she knew Rod was using heroin and LSD, but she didn't take him to rehab because she thought he was, quote, unreachable. She also told the court that she saw nothing wrong with being in a cult. When things wrapped up, the jury voted unanimously to give Rod, now 17, the death penalty. Now it would be up to the judge. In the days leading up to his decision, Rod never apologized for what he did. He again tried to shift the blame onto Heather. He also said he'd taken eight hits of acid on the day of the murder. And he maintained that he was a vampire, but that he was never in a cult. On February 27, 1998, Judge Lockett sentenced Rod Farrell to death. He would be the youngest of the 350 death row inmates in the state of Florida awaiting their executions. Later, he said he had no regrets, that he was destined to kill, and if it hadn't been the Wendorfs, it just would have been someone else. In the meantime, all sorts of media outlets were desperate to get an interview with Heather, but she pretty much stayed in hiding, probably because Judge Lockett was still urging Prosecutor King to reopen her case. And on December 8, 1998, the newspapers reported that there would, in fact, be a second grand jury looking at Heather's case. Earlier in 1998, on April Fool's Day, Scott Anderson withdrew his not-guilty plea to avoid the death penalty and instead face life without parole. His plea bargain would mean no chance of parole. Dana Cooper changed her plea to guilty just day before her jury was selected after a change in venue was approved. She would serve a 17 and a half year sentence. Um, I believe hers was longer than Charity's because of her age. So, Charity also switched to a guilty plea right before her trial in exchange for a third degree murder charge, and she was sentenced to 10 and a half years. After three hours of deliberation in December of 1998, again, the grand jury could not cite enough probable cause to charge Heather Wendorf with any crimes. Not long after that, she gave up witchcraft and bloodletting, and enrolled at an art school in North Carolina to get her high school diploma. In 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that those convicted of crimes under age 18 can only receive a max term of 40 years, and that those previously sentenced to life are entitled to new trials. Scott Anderson was resentenced and is scheduled to be out when he's 51 years old. As of 2020, Scott would be eligible for parole in 2031. When the Wendorf family heard about this, they said they really didn't care. Rod was the one they were concerned with. He was the one who showed no remorse. Back in 2000, the Florida Supreme Court reduced Rod's sentence to life in prison. And I wonder if anyone caught the irony of that being the year that he told all his followers the world was going to end. He told reporters he expected his sentence to be commuted or to get out with time served, and that he had a woman, a job, and pets waiting for him on the outside. Here's another quote about Rod once he learned he had an opportunity to get out of prison. This is from the Destin Log. Quote, Farrell made a tearful apology last week to the families of murder victims Richard Wendorf and Ruth Queen. He said their 15-year-old daughter, Heather Wendorf, tricked him into believing that she was being sexually abused by her father. Heather was not present during the hearings. An Orlando Sentinel article from April of 2020 reported the circuit court judge decided to uphold Rod Farrell's life sentence. The decision noted that 40-year-old Rod Farrell was, quote, irreparably corrupt. It sounded like their decision was based on the fact that even though he was a good prisoner and didn't cause any trouble in jail, he still showed absolutely no remorse for what he did until he found out he had an opportunity to get out of prison. Um, some psychologists and lawyers really argued otherwise, but the court just wasn't buying it. Here's what Rod's mother, Sandra, said about his more recent resentencing. Quote, There's a lot of positives to look at, Gibson said. I know he wants to do really well, to be in the right location, to get on with his life. He doesn't want to hang around with the victims. I'm a lot like that as I've gotten older. I've learned that it is very important to live a decent life. You can really make a difference." Sandra Gibson says she's changed since the trial. She's not the mentally ill person they painted her as in court. She's trying to maintain a normal life with a new set of friends and a new business. Although, a neighborhood she tried to move into started a petition to keep her from moving in. Charity was released from prison in March of 2006, and Dana was released in October of 2011. It's extremely difficult to find any information about them after that. If you want to learn more about this case, there are all kinds of TV shows, movies, and documentaries. You can also order a copy of The Embrace by Aphrodite Jones. For show notes and to see photos and watch videos that go along with this episode, you can go to kyhistoryhaunts.com. You can just find this episode and it's all there. There's also an archive of all the episodes I've done in the past, so if you want to see other photos and videos and things, you can check all of that out. Again, it's kyhistoryhaunts.com. If I need to make a correction, or you have a topic suggestion for a future episode, you can send an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. You can message me on any of those platforms. This case is a tough one, you know, because they were just kids, really. And, you know, to be frank, I think Sandra Gibson has a lot of blood on her hands. And I, you know, it's just really unfortunate. Um, I'm always looking at why people are the way they are, and I think Sandra played a huge part in all of this. So that's my hot take on the the thing. Um, Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this two-part series. I will definitely keep the true crime coming, because I know you guys love that stuff. They always get the most listens. Um, So thank you all so much for listening, and until next time.